Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers and scholars of African American arts, culture, life, literature, politics, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, I had the opportunity to speak with Mariam Thaggard about her new book, Images of Black Modernism, Verbal and Visual Strategies of the Harlem Renaissance. This book examines the intersecting contributions of writers and visual artists during a key period in African-American cultural history. Of course, that key period is the Harlem Renaissance, and this book is a goldmine for anyone interested in that era. It also gives much to those interested in the concept of modernism, especially as it applies to such authors as Zora Neale Hurston, Nella Larson, James Weldon Johnson, George Schuyler, and even Carl Van Vechten, whom she also analyzes as a visual artist. Other visual artists she discusses are Aaron Siskin and James Vandersee. Mariam gives us much information about what went into writing images of black modernism, and it is a delight to hear. Let's listen in. Hello, Mariam. Hi, Rashawn. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're talking to Mariam Thaggart, the author of Images of Black Modernism, Verbal and Visual Strategies of the Harlem Renaissance, published by University of Massachusetts Press in 2010. I've read this book and can say with certainty that Thaggart's study is an exceptional contribution to the discussion of both modernism and the Harlem Renaissance. It is particularly invaluable because it explores the techniques, devices, and politics of modernism as a literary and cultural concept, and it teases out both the distinctions and cross-influences of white modernism and black modernism. Thaggart also brings together writers and visual artists such as Nella Larson and Carl Van Vechten, James Weldon Johnson, and James Vandersee. There is much to glean from this well-written and meticulously researched study. And I'm delighted to have Mariam on the show today to discuss her book. Mariam, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, First, I want to thank you for inviting me to talk about the book. I'm an associate professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. I had a job previously at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, um, and I grew up in Louisiana. Um, I wanted to say a few words about my name because um, people looking at the cover of the book might think my first name is Miriam, um, but as your listeners just heard, um, my first name is pronounced Mariam. Um, I was named after Marnia Makiba, the South African singer. Um, a lot of people may know her because of her marriage to Sophie Carmichael in the 1960s. Um, but I grew up in Louisiana and um, went to school in Massachusetts uh, and also in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley. Nice. Uh, uh, Maria Makiba was also uh, uh, friends with... Um... Nina Simone, is that is that right? You know, actually, I'm not sure. Um, I know that she was good friends with Paul Simon, um, as well as um, the African-American actor, uh, whose name escapes me right now, but he was in Carmen Jones. Um, and she was uh, very popular in the 1960s um, and still is um, in some circles. That's right. I think that actor is Harry Belafonte. Right, Harry Belafonte. Yes. All righty. 
Uh, Mariam, can you begin by telling us uh, how you came to write Images of Black Martinism? Um, yes, the book is a result of my long fascination with the 1920s, and in particular with the Harlem Renaissance. Um, I've always been curious and um, interested in the writers and artists and intellectuals of that particular period. Um, in the book, I look at the relationship between languages and images, um, the ways in which uh, languages and language and images work together to construct stereotypes of African Americans, and conversely, how writers, artists, and intellectuals of the 1920s um, used that relationship to deconstruct those stereotypes, um, to rupture um, the way in which um, certain stereotypes of African Americans um, are traditionally presented in American culture. So I look uh, first at James Wolin Johnson and his really seminal essay on African-American poetry, which he published in the book of American Negro Poetry in 1922. Um, and I look at his critique of Negro or black dialect. Um, and I continue by looking at the works of Noah Larson, George Schuyler, and Carl Van Vechten. And I conclude the book by examining a really fascinating exhibition um, that was held in 1969 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, the exhibition was called Harlem on My Mind. Um, and throughout the book, I explore this dynamic between words and image, uh, the way in which they work together to create um, certain ideas about um, African Americans in American culture. Mm -hmm. I want to talk specifically about the chapters in the book, because uh, you do such a wonderful job highlighting some of the politics and debates um, that the um, artistic work responded to and also sparked. But I want to ask up front if you could define for the listeners some of the terms, the central terms um, that your book revolve around. I think one of those terms would be, is in the title, Modernism. And a, a term that you also use in the book uh, in certain places is imagism. Can you talk to us about how those terms relate to this study? Well, um, I think I was somewhat hesitant to offer a very concrete um, or didactic uh, definition of modernism uh, because the way I envision modernism, um, it's more of a, um, a sense, a sensory experience. Um, dealing with language and images and uh, other forms of art. Um, so in some ways, my conception of modernism um, is very abstract, um, and I recognize it in um, the ways in which um, certain artists and writers um, experiment with language and images um, to create this idea um, of African-Americans and of the African-American experience. Um, so I think the readers of the book may be hard-pressed to find um, that one-sentence definition or description of modernism or black modernism. But in some ways, um, that's 
very deliberate because um, I think there's something expansive um, about black modernism that is recognizable, um, but it's hard to pin down. It's hard to place um, into concrete uh, definitive forms. Um, and in fact, this is a basic argument um, of one of the chapters, um, the chapter on James Weldon Johnson, mm-hmm. where I talk about black dialect um, and the black sermons and black spirituals and how difficult it was for editors um, and compilers of the spirituals to place the spirituals into print. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something about um, black music um, that really resisted um, um, the attempt to place it into this written, um, printed version. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that is um, very parallel to this whole idea of black modernism. Um, we know it when we see it. Um, there's something very exciting and energizing about it. Uh, but how do you actually quantify it or capture it um, in this written uh, textual form? Mm-hmm. And the argument I make about black dialect, I think, is really central to the book. Um, I, I look at how Johnson critiques black dialect, um, the way it's been represented on the printed page. Um, you know, most readers of Negro or black dialect uh, will recognize it in the form of um, misspelled words, uh, incorrect grammar, uh, malapropisms. Um, and Johnson was very critical of this because he suggested that the way black dialect is represented actually conjures up an image of the black body um, that is itself very negative and um, uh, stereotypical. Um, He gives the idea of the um, black dialect giving an image of the Negro in front of the cabin, banjo playing and shuffling. Um, And Johnson argued that um, black dialect as it's represented in the year of 1922, needs to be changed, um, that there needs to be a new way of representing black language. Um, And this language may be less picturesque, meaning it may be less pleasurable to um, the white reader, but it's necessary in order to um, more accurately represent this new Negro um, that is becoming well-known. Um, in the North, and especially in New York. Um, so I look at um, this particular passage in the Book of American Negro Poetry written by Johnson um, and analyze how it actually offers a, a very concise conception um, of changing, um, a representing black language that changed the image of African Americans. Um, and that writing will have to be less picturesque, less pleasing, um, but by doing so, you can actually move, or he argues that you can move um, African American literature forward. Mm-hmm. And the remaining chapters of the book um, try to examine um, you know, how various artists um, you know, took up that call and um, uh, presented this less picturesque image of African Americans. And I want to talk about those in particular in just a moment, but I want to slow down and and ask about that other term, imagism, because it seems really related to um, what you just said. Um, yes, imagism. Um, your listeners may be familiar with that term um, 
through Ezra Pound, um, a very uh, important and significant poet um, in the early 20th century. Um, and imagism, I feel um, one element of imagism is to make poetry uh, concrete, um, that when you write a poem, um, the words that you use, um, the way the poem is written, um, you should use very um, concise language to represent the object. So there is a um, 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 sort of shortness or uh, conciseness to the imagistic poem. Um, when I talk about images, imagism in the book, um, I actually uh, bring up Zora Neale Hurston, um, uh, who I think is sort of revising this idea of imagism. Um, her idea of imagism, I argue, is much more expansive. Uh, it's much more decorative. Um, so whereas someone might pound, might argue for um, the sort of short, um, very uh, concise, uh, uh, poetic form, uh, someone like Hurston really enjoys decorating um, the poem or decorating language. Uh, so Hurston has this really fascinating description of um, the African American's home, mm -hmm. and she describes it as, um, you know, all kind of pictures on the wall, and um, uh, the couch is, um, you know, um, covered with um, very decorative. Um, covers um, just a lot of uh, images surround or in the room, um, and, and I think it's a really good metaphor of how Hurston envisions imagism as this much more um, um, visually engaging um, type of writing. Let's look at talk about some of the other um, ways that authors employ this, employ modernism. Nella Larson, for instance, in this in the second chapter, and you focus uh quite a bit of attention on her uh uh novel passing. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us how she uh fits into this into this discussion of black modernism? Um yes. Um I look at Larson's passing, um, her second novel, and I have to say, you, you asked me earlier um, how I got interested in the Harlem Renaissance, and um, really it was through Noah Larson. Um, a professor recommended that I read Quicksand, um, and after reading it, I was just uh, struck by um, Larson's depiction of this intelligent African-American woman, um, an intelligent African-American woman uh, who reads books and um, uh, has her has a teaching job, and I just found that image quite fascinating. Um, in passing, her second novel, um, she looks at um, a light-skinned woman who passes as white and is reacquainted with um, a childhood friend um, who is um, also light-skinned but maintains um, an African American identity mm -hmm. um, and. Um, first woman, Claire, who's passing, um, tries to uh, insert her herself into Irene, um, the second woman, um, into Irene's um, black life. 
Um, one of the really interesting elements of the novel is uh, Larson's um, keen use of fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has these very descriptive uh, passages in which she talks about the two characters' clothes. Um, so we have one passage where you know, Claire is wearing this um, very odd blue and brown dress that manages to match um, the, um, the decorations in the room. Um, and we have Irene, who is very attuned to um, the fashion choices of Claire. Um, and I suggest in that chapter that um, there's something very important about the way um, dress and clothing is used in the novel. Um, it's used in a way to um, enable um, Irene and Claire to adopt um, a white identity at certain moments. Um, for Claire, you know, she adopts a white identity constantly or continually uh, because she's married to a white man and uh, she hasn't informed him of her black heritage. And Irene passes um, at certain moments when it would be inconvenient uh, to be known as a black person. And I argue that their fashion choices really enable them to um, create a convincing passing performance, um, that their clothing choices um, help create in the viewer or the spectator um, the sense that they're more white than they are black. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a very subtle argument um, in in the sense that there is a class component, I think, to clothing and fashion. Um, and it's a class component that Larson was aware of, and I think her readers would have been aware of, um, that dressing in a certain way will place you in one particular class rather than another. Um, and that Irene and Claire, as astute readers of fashion, would be aware of this, um, and that they um, dress their bodies in a way so that um, they can be perceived um, as members of a higher class or members of um, the white population um, rather than an African-American population. And, of course, embedded in this argument um, is this whole sense that, you know, having a white skin may um, enable you to have uh, better economic or social opportunities. Um, I think that was definitely an idea or an assumption um, among some African-Americans in the early 20th century. Um, You can see that in in the sense in which there's a concern about skin color um, and having a certain skin color may have um, opened certain doors for you if you're African-American. Of course, it's an argument that is highly uh, criticized and rightly so uh, in this day and age. But I think in the, the early 20th century, unfortunately, there was this assumption that, you know, having a particular skin color uh, equated with uh, a certain social class and educational status. I think one of the brilliant things that you uncover um, in this chapter uh, when you talk about the, the, the passing 
Nella Larson, and you you have some mention of um, Johnson's autobiography of an ex-colored man, is the way in which performance itself was in, uh, integral to the passing character, that it wasn't just having optically white skin that allowed them to pass, but as you just illuminated, I think, um, that part of that passing entailed uh, a certain kind of um, visual performance. Right, and I, I look at the whole idea of social etiquette, of um, acting in a certain way in social settings, um, and I actually quote one of the earliest um, etiquette manuals mm-hmm. for African Americans <laughs> um, that was published in 1920, um, and there are actually several manuals like this that try to instruct African Americans on, you know, how to act um, at a social gathering. Um, how to act when you're on the street and you meet someone of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this very uh, conscientious desire to uh, instruct uh, black people on the best way to perform or the best way to um, act um, when you're out in public. Um, I think you know we could you could argue that one of the earliest etiquette manuals for black people was. Um, Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, mm-hmm. where you could see how he's trying to educate um, newly freed slaves on how to be a good citizen, how to be a good American. Um, and I think some of that um, trickles down uh, even to the early 20th century, where you see um, these manual writers um, being really concerned about how African Americans are perceived in a public space. Um, that they have to act um, in a, a good and proper fashion so that they will will reflect positively upon the race. Mm-hmm. And people interested in um, African-American uh, literature, especially in this period, will probably be familiar, as you mentioned, with Mel Larson's passing and with the ambiguous ending which you write about. Um, I, I just want to, <laughs> I want to ask you a question about that ambiguous ending because in, in in one part of the discussion, you you offer a speculative question: What would have happened had Claire not fallen out of the window? Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that your position on that ending is that uh, uh, Irene pushes Claire out the window. Uh, if I remember the ending correctly, it's it's both um, Irene and Claire's husband, John Bellew, at, at the window w- with Claire. And, and so it, it would seem that um, both of them are responsible for her death. Yeah, um, it's an interesting moment. And I always have these really good debates and discussions with my students when I when I teach this novel um, about that particular ending. Um and I, I think I was a little bit um, undecided myself about who actually pushes her or if she falls out of the window. Mm-hmm. I did explore the various implications, um, you know, if Irene was the one to push her out. Um, I think it demonstrates uh, just how nervous and anxious um, she was about Claire maintaining a presence in her life. Um, and then, of course, there's also the possibility that it's Claire's white husband, mm-hmm. uh, John Bellew, uh, who pushes her out the window, which 
um, is another possible reading because um, John Bellew sees Claire in this party with African Americans and finally figures out that um, she may, in fact, be African American. Um, I think one of the more curious possibilities is if Claire um, herself uh, falls out the window through her own her own agency, uh, because then that would suggest um, that Claire is concerned about being found out, um, that she doesn't want to be discovered um, for her uh, passing performance. Um, and I think, you know, regardless of which uh, ending you decide to go with as the reader, um, there's something... Um, there's something about that ambiguity, ambiguity that um, is important in and of itself. Um, there's something, you know, by refusing to give this sort of concrete, definitive answer or definitive ending, um, I think that ending is modernistic um, in the way in which, you know, it leaves it up to the reader to make that sort of determination. Um, and throughout the novel, Claire is this ambiguous figure. Uh, we don't really quite get into her mind. We don't know exactly what her motivations are. Uh, we don't know what she's, think- she's thinking. Um, and the fact that she is a sort of question mark, um, you know, at the very beginning of the novel, I think is reflected um, in the way that it, the novel ends uh, with, you know, this question mark about how does she actually die? Um, does she, you know, you know, kill herself and she commit suicide or, uh, you know, is Irene or is John Bellew responsible for her death? Um, in a way, that sort of uh, very uh, central question um, is reflective of the questions that the reader has about Claire throughout the book. Um, and I just think there's something quite fascinating about um, not being able to pin down Claire, uh, not being able to um, know her as this uh, um, understandable or uh, readily knowable figure um, that I think makes her so enchanting, uh, both for the reader and for Irene. Um, there's something very seductive about her um, uh, inability to be pinned down into one type of figure or character. Mm-hmm. In chapter three, you talk about. Um, George Schuyler's uh, satirical novel, Black No More, and his essay, um, The Negro Art, Hokum. Mm-hmm. Why Schuyler? You know, um, you know, several people have asked me that. And in fact, um, one of the readers, uh, external readers of the book, suggested that I eliminate that chapter. Um, I've always been fascinated with Schuyler. He is a very... Uh, interesting polemical figure. Um, he, he is uh, prone to controversy mm-hmm. and it, it sort of invites controversies. And um, in that, he's very different from a lot of the uh, more well-known figures of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, you know, and I think Black No More is uh, an undeservedly overlooked book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one reason why I included the chapter. Um, it's a very perceptive reading of how race operates um, in American culture, especially in the American political system. Um, 
the book um, is about a doctor who creates this process of uh, making African Americans white. Um, and it's a process that African Americans can do voluntarily. And in fact, so many African Americans do it uh, so that by the end of the novel, African Americans cease to exist in a large number. And Schuyler explores how the absence of black people really damages the American political system, um, that Republicans and Democrats really need racial difference in order to establish themselves with the American public. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of that difference, um, it's difficult to find the, the topics or the issues that will garner votes um, to win a major election like the presidency. So I think it's a very keen reading of how race operates in American culture, um, how there are certain groups that depend upon um, the controversies and divisions that race sometimes uh, creates um, in the American public. Um, and I, I, I admire, I don't agree with uh, all of Schuyler's political ideas and thoughts, um, he was actually very conservative by um, the end of his life, but I do admire his um, willingness to uh, spark uh, debate and um, be the sort of lightning rod um, for um, various groups who uh, wanted to critique um, American politics and the American social system. Um, there's something quite um, you know admirable in his willingness to do that. Uh, even though I think, um, you know, a lot of people are critical of uh, his political stance. But um, it's a really, it's a funny book. Um, It's a satire. And um, I think readers will, um, you know, find a lot of humor in some of the um, situations he recounts. Uh, Say, for example, there's a really uh, funny passage where um, the main character, Max, uh, has just, finished the process and he's now white and he goes into a white club and he watches a white couple dancing and Max thinks to himself, well, they don't really dance very well. They sort of lumber around. They can't move gracefully like African Americans. And Skylar here is um, you know, playing with the whole idea that African Americans know how to dance, that they dance better than white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Max, it's a moment in which he realizes, well, maybe it's not quite a good thing to be white. Maybe um, being white doesn't automatically equate with wealth and prestige. Um, Maybe there is something quite uh, special about being an African-American. And so throughout the book, Skyler sort of questions the stereotypes people have about black people as well as the stereotypes blacks may have about whites. Um, I think when when it's taught in class, it really... um, it makes students laugh because I think they recognize uh, some of the stereotypes um, that are presented in the book. They recognize it in today's culture. Uh, and I think perhaps they may even realize that um, they themselves have uh, those kinds of stereotypes, say, about dancing and um, black athletes. Um, so it's a really good book to get students to question their assumptions about race and um the ideas that um, one particular race is better at doing something than the other one. 
Um, and it just presents it in a very humorous fashion, um, you know, in the way in which it keeps students from, um, you know, sort of clamming up about this usually sensitive topic, race. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy that you decided to ultimately include the chapter in the book for the reason that you state in the chapter. You say that Schuyler is important to a discussion of black modernism because of his decided views on black representation in art and his disruption of the commonly held equation between blackness and the body. It does seem, however, that Schuyler stumbles over some of his own ideas in the book, at least to me, um, especially when... Uh, uh, he talks about the Negro dialect, which is, which as you said, is central to your study. And he says that everybody knows that, you know, there's no difference between, uh, quote unquote, Negro speech and white people's speech in the South or any other region. I always found that that somewhat, uh, somewhat odd, um, uh, a, a statement. But, but perhaps you you have a different different take on that. Maybe, maybe you think that he's disrupting that categorical distinction between black and white language? Well, um, I, I think a really good way to answer that question is to look at his essay, The Negro Art Hokum, mm-hmm. um, where he makes the statement that the Afro-American, um, and it's a, a version of the term Afro-American, the Afro-American is just a lamp black Anglo-Saxon. And it's a problematic statement because it suggests that um, the African-American is just this uh, darkened version of a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a problematic statement because um, he he really downplays um, the, the cultural contributions Africans have, African-Americans have made uh, in terms of language, um, in terms of... Um, um, the social experience or culture that African Americans have uh, contributed to American culture, um, and I think you know there are parts of that essay as well as parts of Black No More that a lot of readers have found troubling, um, precisely because he doesn't um, give a lot of weight um, to the different experience um, African Americans have had in this country. Um, that, you know, were different than the experiences of white Americans, um, nor does he account for um, how the experience of slavery um, really um, um, shaped some of black expressive culture. Um, and there was a response to um, Tyler's essay, Negro Art Hokum, written by uh, Langston Hughes. And Hughes's response does a really good job of um, capturing um, what was unique about black culture um, and um, you know what was special about it in a way that Tyler um, doesn't acknowledge. Um, so I, I think um, a lot of readers have shared your concern um, and have found some um, resolution in uh, Langston Hughes' response. And I also suggest when people um, you know, make that remark about um, how Schuyler is troubling, I also direct them to Ralph Ellison's essay, um, What America Would Be Like Without Blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the title itself um, 
indicates how it's relevant to the book Black No More, in which um, you know African Americans cease to exist in large numbers. But Ellison, in that essay, makes a very powerful and um, provocative argument about how Black people contributed to the language, the the style, um, the quote unquote soul of uh, America. Uh, he calls um, Black contributions um, the swing of American mm-hmm. life, you know, the soul of American life. And I think it's a very beautiful um, and powerful uh, response to um, something like the Negro art hokum that uh, disavows um, the very distinct and unique experiences African Americans have had in this country um, and how that experience has been translated um, into black expressive culture. We're right at the middle um, of the book, and in the next chapters, you transition into talking about the actual um, visuality uh, during the period and such people as Van Vechten and Van Der Zee. I think this would be a good time to uh, ask you to read something from the book for us. Um, sure. I'd like to read a passage from the conclusion um, in which I talk about the Metropolitan's exhibition, Harlem on My Mind. Um, it's a passage that uh, highlights some of the questions and concerns I had with this particular exhibit. Okay. 37 years after the publication of Infants of the Spring, the front pages of major New York newspapers rearticulated the questions that infused the Harlem Renaissance. The art exhibition, Harlem on My Mind, the Cultural Capital of Black America, 1900 through 1968, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art from January 18th to April 6th, 1969, reflects the late 20th century contentiousness about how to represent and market the Harlem Renaissance. The exhibit itself functions as an artifact, an event that, in an effort to celebrate the city's past, cannot be divorced from the aesthetic debates about black representation in the 1920s or from the racial politics of the 1960s. Like the literary anthology, a museum exhibition requires deliberate choices. It confers value, or quote, cultural capital, on the artist included. An exhibition tells a story, and its location within a privileged institutional space, such as a museum, influences how the exhibition's arts and artifacts are perceived and remembered. Writing of the aesthetic and political purposes of the museum in Western culture, Carol Duncan notes how the museum space both reflects the power of the nation state and fashions the nation's citizens. In 1969, the Metropolitan Museum of Art reflected Harlem's past in its historic and artistically significant galleries. By devoting such space to Harlem, the Metropolitan, or at least the exhibition's decision makers, appear to acknowledge the role that Harlem and its inhabitants played in one of the great cities in the United States. Why would a display riddled with charges of racism, anti-Semitism, and paternalism that had limited input from African American scholars and artists, that inspired an anonymous patron to deface one of the Metropolitan's paintings by Rembrandt, an exhibit that, even before it opened, 
offended numerous New Yorkers, including African Americans, Jewish Americans, Latinos, the mayor of New York City, and New York art patrons. Why is such an exhibit instructive of the problematic remembering process and an example of an unsuccessful weaving of image and text? Harlem on my mind reproduced some of the most divisive issues of the Harlem Renaissance. For example, the questions of white patronage, the qualities that signified art, and the best way to represent African Americans. The exhibit became a microcosm of the debates that defined Black Harlem in the 1920s and the 1930s, and it mirrored the concerns that continued to influence Harlem's portrayal. The Metropolitan's Harlem on My Mind celebrated Harlem, yet it did so by focusing heavily on photography. The exhibition quite literally staged its narrative through a juxtaposition of image and text, a contest between pictures and words. In addition to photographs by such artists as Aaron Siskin and Gordon Park, the exhibit consisted primarily of enlarged photographs by James Vanderzee and reprints from New York area newspapers. And because the event took place after a highly charged moment of racial crisis in New York City's history, it resurrected the too familiar binary of art or propaganda. Mm-hmm. The exhibit's textual counterpart a catalog published by Random House demonstrated in particular the problems surrounding the textual commemoration of Harlem. I'm concerned not so much with the actual exhibit as I am with the controversies and aesthetic discussions it engendered in the exhibition's reception by both Harlemites and notable reviewers. The exhibit was noteworthy not only for the controversy surrounding it, but also for the skill it displayed in marketing for popular consumption and idea of the Harlem Renaissance. The exhibition's presentation of the period, as well as the battle over what Harlem is and how it should be represented, instructs us about how this space functions in American culture, who, if anyone, owns it, and the tension between the visual and the written image and text that continues to influence contemporary portrayals of black culture. What is the cultural capital of Harlem and who gets to define it? What are the images Harlem and its Renaissance evoke and why? Examining the Metropolitan's attempt to refashion the Renaissance offers a timeless lesson on the construction and appropriation of Harlem's commodifiable history and about a place that continually reflects an early paradigmatic black modern moment. Very nice. It exemplifies the how well written this book uh, is. Oh, thank you. You talk in chapter four about Van Vechten's um, uh, photography, about his uh, visual collections, and about his controversial novel *Nigger Heaven*. Mm-hmm. Do you? What do you think about that title? Um. Yeah, I. I have um mixed feelings about the title. Um, you know, Van Vechten told his friends that he deliberately wanted a title that would uh, spark interest, spark discussion, and he definitely did that. Um, and, of course, the title itself refers to uh, how Harlem is geographically located above um, downtown New York. Um, so the black space of Harlem sort of overlooks 
um, the white area of Harlem. Um, I don't think the title was necessary, um, but I understand why he did it. And um, there were a number of people who were disappointed with the title, uh, particularly the poet, County Cullen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, didn't, I don't think the title was necessary, but um, I think it did exactly what Ben Vecton wanted. Um, it made the book uh, um, popular, and uh, a lot of people read it. It was uh, the best-selling, best-selling book of the period. Uh, went through numerous editions, and uh, I think it demonstrates Ben Vecton's uh, marketing skill. Uh, I think he was a great marketer, um, and so in that sense, the title uh, was quite um, uh, quite a good marketing strategy for him. You include a number of photographs from uh, Carl Van Vechten's, um Yale collection, mm-hmm. and they're they're very striking. Um, can you can you talk to us about those? Yeah, um, the images in the book come from Ben Beckton's photographs of blacks, and um, it's a very extensive collection of photographic images that Ben Beckton took um, of both black celebrities and um, everyday African Americans. Uh, say, for example, his maid. Um, just images that he took of African Americans, and one of the uh, most photographed person is Ethel Waters, um, who is a, another overlooked figure of the period. Um, but in the book, I have images of Billie Holiday um, holding this African mask, um, and that mask actually reappears in several of um, Ben Beckton's photographs. And I was just really curious about um, how the mask was used and presented um, in various images. Um, in the book, I in particular highlight um, the use of the mask with um, Billie Holiday, mm-hmm. um, the well-known African-American singer. Um, and I think it's the, the first image of Billie Holiday holding the mask. Uh, she has it close up to her face, and her eyebrow is kind of arched, and she's looking at the um, the, the viewer or um, the photographer with a sort of amused expression, um, you know, sort of, you know, just sort of wondering what um, the viewer um, or the spectator may be thinking. And I just think it's a, a very um, evocative image, <laughs> of, you know, a very questioning image of what blackness may represent. Um, to um, a white viewer in particular. Um, and it's curious to me because the image that Ben Beckton takes of Billie Holiday um, seems to echo um, another uh, famous image of a white woman uh, holding an African mask next to her face. Um, and I have images um, of that particular um, uh, white woman also in the photograph. Oh, I'm sorry, also in the book for comparison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think it's the way that the mask um, is used in the series of photographs by Ben Beckton um, just highlights the idea that um, there is a uh, sort of commodifiable, uh, a knowable 
idea of blackness. And I think Ben Beckton in his photograph is um, very ironically trying to portray that. So one of the arguments I make in that chapter is that um, whereas Ben Beckton stated um, that the title of his book was meant ironically um, and that there are certain ironic moments in his novel, I think he's actually more successful in ironizing blackness and what people conceive of blackness in his photographs um, because of the way um, some of the subjects are represented or posed. Um, so in contrast to the book, um, which I think, you know, for a lot of black readers was not ironic and it was not a parody of black life, I think his photographs are much more successful in um, capturing the sort of ironic attitude about uh, black culture. Mm-hmm. And there, another, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, another argument I make in that chapter is that um, the collection that Van Vechten created at Yale, um, a collection he named after uh, James Wilden Johnson, um, I argue that it's a very important and significant collection of black arts and letters um, and that uh, a lot of people are uh, critical of Van Vechten and his role in the Harlem Renaissance, but I suggest that uh, regardless of what you think about his book or about his role, uh, you do have to credit him for um, creating and devising this really uh, pivotal collection of black life and uh, black art um, at Yale University. In the fifth chapter, you have a very um, provocative and somewhat curious quote that you begin uh, the book with by um, Roland Barthes. Uh, I have a disease. I see language. <laughs> I found that 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 really interesting. This chap in this chapter, you talk about the photography of uh, James Vanderzee and Aaron Siskin. Mm-hmm. Why that uh, Why that epigraph, and how does it relate to your discussion? You know, I think that there's something very visual in language. I think that um, you know, language is not just this. Um, uh, a textual form or a written form. Um, and it's not just a, a verbal form of communication. Um, I think there's something very imagistic um, in language. And that's um, sort of the argument that underlies the whole book, that um, within language and the words that we use, we're constructing or creating visual images in our mind. Um, these mental images that shape how we see people. Um, and so when I came across that particular quote by uh, Bart, I, I just thought it was perfect for this particular chapter um, uh, because, you know, language is something you not only read um, or hear, it's also something that you see. And it's, language is, you know, something that um, visually makes these images in your mind. So it's um, a sensory experience that um, relates to not just hearing, but also seeing. So you can see language, you can envision language. Um, Bart calls it a disease. I don't think it's a disease, but a very creative uh, and important way of viewing the world. Wow. 
Mariam, it has been a pleasure listening to you talk about your book, Images of Black Modernism, Verbal and Visual Strategies of the Harlem Renaissance. I bet your students are always thoroughly engaged and, and fascinated um, by what you present in, in, in class. I know that I was very fascinated and engaged in this book, which uh, I have added to my um, syllabus for the spring. Okay. What are you working on now? Um, right now, I'm doing something very different. Um, I'm moving slightly away from the early 20th century and examining um, various forms of technology in the 19th century and how um, technology shaped perceptions of race in American culture. Um, I'm highly interested in the railroad um, and the phonograph um, and how those two particular forms of technology uh, destabilized Americans' conceptions of race. Uh, so say, for example, um, the railroad car um, in America, um, it was a highly regimented and regulated space um, of race. Um, if you think about Plessy versus Ferguson and the Jim Crow cars, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you were of a certain race or if you looked to be uh, of a certain race rather than another, you were uh, required to occupy um, a certain space in the railroad car. And I'm just curious about how um, technology really um, impacted what um, Americans defined as race and how Americans defined whiteness and blackness um, and even indeed what it meant to be an American. Um, So it's, this project, this new project I'm working on, takes me away from the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but again, I'm still interested in um, how uh, various races are represented and constructed in American culture. Thank you so much, Mariam, for joining us on New Books in African American Studies. Thank you so much for inviting me. We've been listening to Mariam Thaggard discuss her wonderful new book, Images of Black Modernism, Verbal and Visual Strategies of the Harlem Renaissance, published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2010. If you haven't already, I encourage you to pick up this book, read it, and share it with 